0: So how will God save his church? Which really means how does God save us in the midst of our suffering? I think that's what the readings point us to really reflect on. Because in the first reading, you have Elijah, who when he has this experience of God whispering to him, he's not just taking a nice little retreat in the desert. He's fleeing for his life because all of the prophets of God have gone to false worship. And he's all alone as one of the few prophets that's actually faithful to a god in a land that has deserted him and a people that are confused and all going separate ways and he's going there to look for how god is going to respond to this crisis and in the gospel the apostles are trying to keep the boat afloat in the midst of a grave storm in the middle of the night and what's fascinating is the church has always been compared to a ship So most churches traditionally were even um, shaped in that way, in a cruciform kind of ship that understood that we were traveling across the sea of the world. That's why even where you're seated right now is called the nave. And the nave comes from navus, Latin, which means ship. And the sanctuary is where the priest is offering the sacrifice, directing us towards heaven. So this image of the apostles fighting to keep the ship, the boat afloat in the middle of the night as the waves are crashing against it is an image of the church in crisis. When things are falling apart and there's confusion and darkness, and even the sixth hour, that actually refers to between 3 and 6 a.m. out there. So it's the middle of the night. There's not a lot of hope with where they're at. It's an image of the church in turbulent times. So with Elijah on the mountain and the apostles on the sea, What we have an image of are the apostles of God, the faithful ones of God, asking him, how will you save your people? I believe both images, Elijah and the apostles, they reflect the current state of the church in our own times, So Elijah faces the apostasy of all these other prophets who used to belong to God. And one thing that we are seeing the rise of in our times Our priests and bishops, faithful Catholics, once faithful Catholics, once faithful nations who used to follow the gospel and uphold that with their lives are little by little conceding to the spirit of the world and no longer speaking out against what is evil or even worse, being afraid to affirm what we teach, what we believe as Catholics, which is unchanging All the questions that we have about morality, sexuality, faith in Christ, none of it has changed for 2,000 years. And there's a reason for that. We didn't create it. The church does not have any power to create morality. Our power, it only comes from protecting it in Christ's name. And so the image of the water getting into the boat and causing it to capsize, that's what happens when we the priests or the bishops or the faithful are, not, are allowed in the waters of the world, the beliefs and ideologies, the heresies of the world, to enter into the boat. This is, a, this is a difficulty in our times, especially in Elijah, you can imagine what he felt in his time. He was one of the few prophets that was actually faithful to God. And he's asking the question, where are you in the midst of that? Now, have you ever felt that as Catholics, you know? You're you're with other Catholic people or even going to Catholic churches, but you don't always feel as one heart with them. There's a division that can grow within our church when we start to allow our thoughts, our beliefs, and our hearts to be determined by things outside of the teachings of the church. You know, Cardinal Sarah, uh, he's one of the great cardinals in Rome from Africa. This is what he had to say about kind of the situation of our church in, right now. He said, "The profound crisis that the church is experiencing in the world, and especially in the West, is the fruit of the forgetting of God. Forgetting of God. If our first concern is not God, then everything else in life collapses." At the root of all crises, anthropological, political, social, cultural, geopolitical, there is the forgetting of God, the forgetting of the primacy of God. So the church survives only by God's grace. And the way that we stay in the grace of God is like Peter, who had to keep looking at Jesus when he was on the water. Jesus had to be more important to him than every other thing around him. And as soon as he started looking at the waves or focusing on the wind or where he was at, he began to sink. And I think one of the biggest problems that we are tempted with in our times is that we give too much attention to things that are not God. And that's in our own lives. Whether it be politics or or things of just our modern-day society or BSU, if anything is more important than keeping the gaze of God in our life, than our prayer and our relationship with Him and receiving His Word, that's when we begin to sink into the waters of this world. So how will God respond? I was was contemplating this this past week, and I had an old friend call me from seminary, who I went with, and he was asking my opinion on the apparitions that took place in Garamendal, Spain. How many of you have ever heard of this before? Fresh crowd, just a few. Okay, so um, these happened in the 1960s. Between 1961 and 1965, uh, they have not been approved by the church as of yet because the seers are still alive. Uh, there's no lo- they're no longer receiving visions, and because the messages were so scandalous in that time. Right? It was going to take some time for it to be really evaluated and what they said would happen in the future. So this seminarian friend of mine was asking me, how much do I believe in that? How much credence do I give? And as a, I have to say, as a young man, it really affected me when I was in college. It was one of those things that helped convert me back to the faith. Um, but we can't make an official stance on it until the church does. Only the church can say, once they've evaluated all circumstances, if it is true or not. But Saint Teresa, uh, of Cal- Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and Saint Padre Pio both believed that it was true. They both met with Conchita this year, and they told uh, people who came to them to go visit Garamendal, uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel there. So if they say it's true, I mean, at least brings it up to a higher level of validity. So I wanted to just talk about what happened in that apparition. This was in 1961 to 1965 in this little town of Garamendal in Northern Spain, and to four different girls all friends, ages 11 and 12. And what happened was kind of similar actually to Fatima. That happened in 1917 in Portugal. An angel appeared to them first and said to prepare themselves because the Blessed Virgin Mary was going to come to them. And just within a week of that time, Mary appeared. And Conchita, who's been the most outspoken about this, you can see videos on this and everything um, over the last 50 years. She said that Mary spoke to them, like a mother who's been away. Like was very familiar, just asking about their life, their games, their grades, you know, if they're being obedient to their parents and teaching them to pray the rosary, all was just very simple. Um, but it was all with a lot of mysterious phenomenon around it. So every time they'd be at different places in the neighborhood and they would get these calls, these interior joys, just overcome with love and joy. And they just felt this compulsion to run to the spot all three at the same time, every time it happened, and then they'd go into an ecstasy. And when they're in ecstasy, nothing could hurt them. People would poke them, fire on them, you know, try to push them over, they wouldn't be moved by any external stimuli, and their heads would just be up. And you can actually see videos of this if you look on YouTube. And during these apparitions, um, people would put rosaries and crosses, all these religious articles on tables. And the girls would pick them up during their ecstasies. I'm talking hundreds of them. Pick them up and have Mary kiss them, and they'd always just hand it right back to the person who it belonged to, every single time. And a lot of times, because priests didn't want to uh, be known for giving um, their assent to these apparitions, what was happening, priests and religious would go without their garb. So they'd look like just normal people, the low laity. And then what Mary would do is uh, he would, they would take the crosses. And whenever there was a priest there, Mary would kiss the cross. And they'd always go and find the priest. And it was only the priest who kissed the cross. So they were always given away uh, who the priest was. And one time, uh, the girls said that they were kind of scandalized because they saw a powder compact you know, for the face on the table before the apparitions. And they were wondering why that would be there. They thought it was profane. But when Mary appeared, the first thing that she said is bring me uh, the powder box, the powder compact. It belongs to my son. And so they brought it to her. She kissed it and bowed to it, and they gave it back to the owner. Afterwards, they found out from this man that he used to use that powder compact um, to carry the Blessed Sacrament during the Spanish Civil War to people who were dying on the fields, or in prison. So when Mary said it belonged to my son, it's because it was carrying the host. And during these apparitions, during these visions, she'd oftentimes lead them into the church, and they'd be kneeling for two, three hours at a time, just in prayer before the tabernacle. And whenever they walked out, they all walked out backwards. They never turned their back to the tabernacle. One cool story uh, that I found was, uh, one priest named Father Luis Maria, And he went there with his brother, he was a Jesuit, and uh, both his brothers were, him and his brother were Jesuits. They went there just to look, and he was known as a very austere man. You know, young man in his 30s, very self-righteous. I have no idea how to relate to that. Um, But he was just, he was just going there just to see if it was actually true. And uh, first time he went there, he wasn't very impressed. He went there again on his own, and he said during the, the vision, all of a sudden his countenance changed. He started saying, miracle, miracle, miracle. And after, after the um, apparition ended, they said he was just kind of shaking. He was in a stupor. They put him in the car. And as they were driving down, um, he was so overcome with joy. He said, I'm so happy the Blessed Virgin has given me an immense gift. We're so lucky to have a mother like her in heaven. There is no doubt in my mind that, this vision's, that these visions are true. Today is the happiest day of my life. Then he was silent. And, Father, what's what's wrong? He was dead. That was his last his last words. I know, he was I mean he was a young stallion in his prime, right? And on um, one glance from the Blessed Virgin Mary knocks him dead. Literally. And so he was just it was a really beautiful witness to that. And after um, once they came back, uh, the women the sorry the um, the the seers spoke with his brother, and said, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary allowed your brother to see not only her, but the great miracle that she's going to bring about to convert the world back to her son in time. And so a lot of these just like little gifts and mystical phenomenon and miracles that God does to validate, whether it's from God or not, the church will tell, but you can't deny the, the objective facts of it. So I want to read the two messages. Mary only ever gave two messages uh, in that four-year period that should be shared with us. The first one, it was in 1961, and the last one was just a couple months before the apparitions ended in 1965. So in 1961, she said, we must make many sacrifices, perform much penance, and visit the blessed sacrament frequently. But first, we must lead good lives if we do not. A chastisement will befall us. The cup is already filling up, and if we do not change, a very great chastisement will come upon us. So these are the little girls reading what she told her to say. So it's just a call to, to repentance and conversion. Four years later, right before the last miracle, and she the, the late last great miracle uh, that she allowed them to see was at the end of the visions, oftentimes the girls would receive an invisible host on their tongue that, would, um, that they said they would receive from an angel who would get it from a tabernacle. But the last time they ever received it, right after this message, the host, uh, and you can actually, again, see this in uh, pictures, the host appeared on their tongue. So everyone could see all of a sudden the host right in, in her mouth. Conchita did not think that was an impressive miracle because she could see it every time. She's asking for something bigger than that. Um, but this was Mary's last message on June 18, 1965. As my message of October 18th has not been fulfilled and has not been made known to the world, I tell you that this is my last message. Before the cup was filling up, now it is overflowing. Many cardinals, many bishops, many priests, are on the road to perdition and are taking many souls with them. That was a line that inspired me to go into the priesthood, to answer the call to the priesthood. Because before it was my life, right? But when I read that in college, after I'd been called and was running away from it, I realized how intrinsically united the fidelity of a priest is to everyone united to his care. And in this time, 1960s, it was unheard of that the laity would ever say something negative about their priests. Some things I wish we could get back to in the 1960s. (laughs) So to have these girls saying this publicly, this is why the message was silenced for a long time, basically. So she goes on, less and less importance is being given to the Eucharist. You should turn the wrath of God away from yourselves by your efforts. If you ask for his forgiveness with sincere hearts, he will forgive you. I, your mother, through the intercession of St. Michael the Archangel, ask you to amend your lives. You are now receiving the last warnings. I love you very much and do not want your condemnation. Pray to us with sincerity, and we will grant your requests. You should make more sacrifices. Meditate on the passion of Jesus. That was it. So... What did Mary really ask us to do in the midst of this great storm that was coming over the church? It's the same message that she gave in Fatima. When the predictions of the societal breakdown in the 60s was already prophesied. It was to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Elijah did and that's what Peter did. Peter was able to walk on the water as long as he was looking at Jesus in the midst of the storm. The apostles stayed afloat as long as they were crying out to Jesus in the midst of the storm. And Elijah was faithful to God as long as he was fleeing from those who were rejecting the true worship and keeping his eyes on God, waiting for him to speak. And that's how God will save us over and over again. It's not about looking for the great signs and wonders, I don't believe, that may come into our world. I hope it does. I hope the second coming comes very soon. But I don't see it coming in fire or in thunder or anything like that anytime soon. But what I do know is every single time we go to confession and we hear the whispering words of God's absolution, and every time we go to mass and we hear the whispering words of consecration, that's when Jesus Christ is coming to us over and over again to prepare us for that second coming. And if we are faithful to God speaking to us and revealing himself to us here and now, we will be ready to stand before him at the end of time. And that is the way he always comes to save us.